Welcome to Everything STEAM. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. As a physicist and structural engineer in training with Jacobs Engineering, I've made many connections with some bright individuals who are either working, studying, or self-taught and passionate about our particular topics of discussion. There is so much science behind beer, and the brew process is so interesting. People all over the world for centuries have been working on perfecting and expanding the brewing process to bring you the right beer for your palate. This episode is packed full of brewing and beer information. We plan to cover the pillars of the brewing process along with the characteristics of beer you may encounter. As you well know, we are a STEAM education podcast, and from my experience with beer, I have noticed that it's a science, it takes technology and incorporates new innovations constantly, engineering is heavily involved to handle pressures, flow, and heat exchange, and of course, it is an art. It brings forth beauty, communication, and camaraderie, and of course, you can't have the former subjects without a little bit of math. Now, let me be frank. I surely wouldn't be able to handle this myself, so I brought on some fantastic guest stars just for you to talk about beer. So speaking of our guest stars, first meet Lauren Hughes. Lauren has tons of experience in the brewing industry. Lauren is currently the head brewer at Necromancer Brewing and previously was the assistant head brewer at Penn Brewery, an assistant brewer at Rock Bottom Brewery in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Lauren's education involves the Brewing and Malting Science course certificate at the University of Madison, Wisconsin, along with KU Leuven's Certificate in the Science of Brewing in Belgium. Lauren is also the Vice President of the Pittsburgh District Master Brewers Association, as well as an active member of the Master Brewers Association of Americas and the Pittsburgh Brewery Diversity Council. Interesting facts about Lauren include a love for brass instruments. Lauren earned multiple degrees focused in the methods and practice of teaching brass instruments and in French horn performance at Indiana and Florida State University, respectively. The last fun fact is that Lauren enjoys long sword fencing as a hobby. That's pretty cool. Our second guest star is Dr. Robert Parker. Bob is the Associate Dean for Graduate Education and the Robert V.D. Luft Professor of Chemical and Petroleum Engineering at the University of Pittsburgh. His education includes a BS in Chemical Engineering from the University of Rochester and a PhD in Chemical Engineering from the University of Delaware. Bob has been a home brewer since 2000 and is the co-founder of 30 Bridges Brewing here in Pittsburgh. In 2018, Bob, Jim Schneider, and Michelle Presley won the BJCP Best in Show and People's Choice Award for their Kilted Panther Stout at the American Institute of Chemical Engineering Beer Brewing Competition. Last but certainly not least, Bob developed the University of Pittsburgh's Engineering a Craft Brewery course in 2017, and I just so happened to be a former student of his for that class during my time at Pitt. Well, now that you've been introduced to the topic of discussion and our fantastic guest stars, we are going to jump into our first commercial, but when we come back, you'll get an introduction into the brewing industry and the types of beer you may encounter in the world. Cheers. In three, two, one, Bob Parker, Lauren Hughes, glad to have you on the show. What a great time to be alive where we can talk about beer in a podcast. So welcome to Everything Steam. Thanks, Sam. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, awesome. Well, first of all, I, I want to start off by just saying, Lauren, I was at Necromancer Brewing a couple weekends ago, and I had the latest, you know, Fransonian lager that you had out there. Oh, it was amazing. Thank you. I got to say it was, you know, the toastiness was right just had the right amount of sweetness. I thought you 
really fulfilled it. It was very good. You know, I want to start with the plug by just saying like, hey, everybody should go check out Necromancer Brewing here in Pittsburgh. Fantastic brewery. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, all right. This first segment, there'll be more of an introduction and appreciation section in regards to the brewing world. Then we'll cover, quote unquote, the pillar types of beer you may encounter, as well as some aspects in taste testing. So let's dive in by starting at the very beginning. So the first solid proof of beer in the world was brewed by the Sumerians around 4000 BCE. However, in the West, the process now recognized as beer brewing began in Mesopotamia at the Godin Tepe settlement in now modern day Iran, which was about 3500 BCE. So it's been around for a long time, tried and true. It's come a very long way. But let me start off by asking a fun little question, starting with Bob and then Lauren. What is your favorite piece of beer or brewing history? Um, I really like Belgian beers, and particularly West Vlutter and 12 is one of my favorites. That means that uh, we'll call it circa 1685. Uh, it has to be an interesting date in beer history. That is around the time that La Trappe in France was one of the first Trappist breweries to be brewing. Now, if you move through history, then the official Trappist designation as we know it today is the International Trappist Association. That wasn't actually founded until 1997 and was a response to some marketing by other groups trying to cut in on the, the Trappist beer space. Um, the breweries that we all recognize when you think about Belgian Trappist date actually to West Mala in 1836 and West Vlutter in 1838. So a little bit of Belgian beer history to go with the the Trappists. It's beautiful. Thank you. Lauren, what's your favorite piece of history? I feel like I wouldn't be a good brewer working at a craft brewery if I didn't say like the craft beer boom. Uh, so 1970s, 1990s, it's pretty much when all the regional breweries that are pretty big right now got their start. Uh, that's when home brewing kind of took off a little bit more. And I think that's, at least for American craft brewers, that's where a lot of our inspiration comes from. It's a, where a lot of our inspiration at Necromancer comes from resurrecting old beer styles i mean ben the the founder he likes to tout this all the time but he's right like the ipa was the original resurrection american brewers brought what they knew of the english ipa and kind of tweaked it into something that they wanted and made this hoppy brew that is now dominating for beer sales right now and it's kind of been on everybody's top 10 list for you know the past 30 years so yeah i think that's probably my favorite just because there's so much that has come out of that and I have a job because of it. So, <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. I have a little piece of history, and that is when Columbus in the 1490s, I know, you know, there's a lot of speculation behind Columbus and, you know, all the things that he's done in the past, but he found that in the 1490s that the natives here in North America were making beer from corn and black birch sap. In terms of them making beer in some form or another, I'm not surprised. But the timing and the confirmation of migration and cultural triculation is just truly fascinating. You know, brewing literally stretched across the majority of Earth by the late 1400s, which is super cool. Okay, we know that brewing has come a very, very long way since the dawn of beer. From the inventions that harness electricity to the inventions of pumps and industrial equipment, breakthroughs in biology for understanding yeasts and pathogens, and much more. It's led us to where we are today. So Lauren, where are we today with respect to the brewing industry and how widespread is it? Maybe it's also important to establish the levels of brewing 
of the brewing industry, like craft, micro, and macro? Brewing is huge right now, especially in the States. You know, brewing has always been big in Germany. It's always been big in England. And now the whole craft scene is starting to take over there. But, you know, there's so many aspects to brewing right now. You know, you can be a, a nano brewery where you're making 500 barrels a year. Uh, or you could be, you know, one of the big dogs like Bud Light, hundreds of thousands of barrels a year. And every which way in between. I mean, I think the the thing about craft brewers is, you know, we're we're all trying to get a piece of that for our own, get our own creativity out of it, you know, and it's just it's crazy to see how much it's grown. It's crazy to see how much people drink this. It turned into something that was like a working man's beverage and it's turned into something that's like your craft coffee or, you know, going out for dining. It's kind of elevated to that point. And it's it's great to see people pushing the boundaries and seeing what we can do. Beer, right? That's one thing about American beers. We're doing some crazy stuff and it's cool to see what comes out of it and what people are drinking and what people are interested in and what you can do uh, with beer. You know, the technology has gone up and that's great. And it's also, I think, just the creativity and it's just putting different things in beer and trying new things and seeing what we can make of it. Yeah, because that's the thing about the history of beer is beer started off not really as beer and more of a fermented beverage that people drink. If you're thinking about beer as the, you know, the Reinheitsgebot, you have to use barley or wheat to make it. But, you know, now people are kind of going back and being like, well, let's try it this way. Let's try it that way. And it's become such much more of a broader term, I think. But yeah, I mean, it's great. There's a lot of beer. There's so many different types to drink. And it's it's great to be a brewer because you get to kind of try and make all those things. And yeah, hopefully that answers your question without getting too far off. No, I, I like that a lot. And one term that stood out to me was nano. I didn't know nano nano breweries was a thing. I just heard micro. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, they're using a you know a sense of scale to it. I like that. Nano, micro, and then and then it's usually you know unless you're one of the big conglomerates, it's craft. Depends on how many barrels you make a year. One thing that I've noticed in America alone is that you know we're really keen with small businesses. Small businesses drive literally. I would say about half of of economics here. And it's super important to support small businesses first, you know, by giving these these breweries a try. I must say I do my best to only try beer from these small breweries just because in my opinion, that's where you get, like you said, most character, creativity, and a bang for your buck. There's really a conversation, in my opinion, in, in every sip of beer. So speaking of this character and creativity that brings beer to the table, how about I direct the conversation towards the characteristics that you would experience during what the pros would call a sensory session? So Bob, would you mind explaining these characteristics? And then Lauren, we can circle back and and you can talk about the major beer types and how they address these characteristics. So Bob? So a sensory session in general, right, is to, and the reason it is a sensory session is it uses all of your senses. So from the time that you look at a beer in a glass, right, you already are beginning to build an impression of what is this thing, right? You hold up a dark beer and you begin to think, okay, you know, is it a stout? Is it a porter? You're already putting style characteristics around it and you begin to have expectations. So the first is the appearance. And if you compare a porter that you might be able to see a little bit of light coming through versus a Northeast IPA, which is a big cloud ball, then no light comes through there, right? So you're going to get a hazy versus a clear. So you begin with that impression of appearance, and each particular style has its own appearance. You lift a German wheat beer, it's supposed to be cloudy. I'm getting what I expect. 
Then there's an aroma, and you bring it in and, and take a sniff and say, what am I getting? And the character of the beer is contributed by its ingredients, malts, yeast, and hops, will give different effects coming off the top of that glass, again, consistent with style. Take a sip, you now have the opportunity to put it on your tongue and say, what am I getting out of here? And the styles, again, give you some guidance on the kinds of things you should expect. If you grab a West Coast IPA, you're going to get a really powerful bitter hop character. You're supposed to. And the choice of hops will give you a different uh, impact for your tongue and the various locations that sense sweet versus sour. And then mouthfeel, right? You grab a, a big uh, imperial stout, you're expecting to get a big, thick mouthfeel. You grab that Bud Light that Lauren had referred to earlier, that's going to go down a little bit like water, not a whole lot going on. The last is sort of an overall impression feel. And that is, what is the overall take on this beer? Did I like it? What are my thoughts? And each of those has a scoring amount in a judging category that add up. And if you get to 50, you've got the best beer on the planet. You get down in the 20s, and that's something that a home brewer has some work to do before they're going to be able to share it with their friends again. I think it's also really important to stress that everyone has a different palate. Everyone experiences beer differently. Like, I'm a big stout person. I, I'm not sure what you two like, but... I'm not a hoppy type of person. I don't like bitter, so I stay away from it. Everyone's built differently. So don't be afraid. If you, if you go out, try a beer. If you don't like it, there's plenty other options out there. Don't just say, I don't like beer. Try something else. And I'm sure you'll find something that you'll like. And in this line, I think it's interesting that we're carrying on a discussion because judging is done by groups of people discussing for exactly the reason you just raised. We all have different palates and sense things slightly different. Absolutely. Okay, Lauren, now that we've addressed the characteristics, let's establish the pillars of beer, so to speak. Maybe we could start off with a lager or a pilsner because that holds familiarity with, I'd say, most viewers. Yeah, I'd say you're kind of run-of-the-mill American lager. That's going to be something that's, you know, it's pale, it's clear. The overwhelming flavor profile on that is going to be moderately sweet. I would say like corn, sweet. Kind of zippy on the carbonation, something you can knock back. Low ABV, it's not going to throw you down. You're not going to taste the alcohol in it. Yeah, I mean, it's a good quaffable, I, I like to call them lawnmower beers, you know, because you can have three or four while you're doing lot yard work and not, you know, blow yourself into oblivion. And it's they're hydrating. They're crisp. They're clean. And then from there, you can kind of move to what uh, you would think is something that's a little bit more maltier. You know, and usually when you get more maltier, you are going to, change color a little bit, turn a little bit darker, you know, depending on where you're going. So I'd say if you're down with lagers, you like lagers, uh, you know, the next kind of thing to try would be maybe an Irish red, maybe a brown ale, especially if you're into that malty kind of flavor. If you like that cereal grain taste, if you're somebody who eats bran flakes and really likes it, you know, some people are like bran flakes, it doesn't taste very, very good, but like there is a grainy sweetness to those types of beers. That are nice. It's not going to be anything that's super repelling, not super hoppy, not super roasty, because some people get turned off by roasty, not really sour. Moving kind of further along for like the top hitters, you know, you have your porters. Porters are going to be roastier, chocolatier. I think of porters as more of a latte as far as your roast and your chocolate. Think of like a mocha. And then it, your stouts are going to be something that's a little bit more roast, a little more bite, thicker. I would say you're looking at black coffee, but you're also with those types of beers, you have a lot of uh, crystal malts in there and dark crystal malts, which leads to kind of like raisin prune and dark dried fruit cherry flavors and those types of beers. So if that's kind of where you're at, with those types of beers, if you like coffee, if you like chocolate, if you like anything like that, that's a good introduction for those. 
Um, and then you can kind of move to hoppier beers and then it, and then you have the two different categories of West Coast versus East Coast on the IPAs. Uh, and then you have pale ales as well. You know, for West Coast, they're going to be bitter. Your big flavor aroma profiles on those, it's going to be piney, uh, citrusy, not so much towards the dank. And when I say piney and citrusy, I'm thinking the citrus is more like an orange pith, like rind, rather than like orange juice. You'll get some of that, but that bitterness in there, it's like having something that's a little bit towards the skin. They are bitter. If you like bitter things, they're right up your alley. Uh, and then you get towards the hazy IPAs, which, you know, they kind of look like orange juice and they kind of taste like juice. You know, they're not as bitter and you're getting more. The hops that we use are, are going to be more citrus forward. They're going to be a little bit more tropical. The hops that we're getting nowadays are kind of all over the map. I, I did one that was straight up strawberry, which was crazy to me. It was it literally tasted like drinking strawberries. And those are going to be a little bit softer. They're a little thicker on the mouthfeel. They have a juice, an orange juice, like if you were to carbonate orange juice, that's the mouthfeel that you get from it. They're pillowy, they're soft, there's not as much smack on you, and it's more of a citrus, fruity aftertaste that you get. And then, you know, if you're someone who drinks wine, usually what we do is we're like, all right, let's try some sours. Let's try some Belgian ales. You know, there's so many. There's so many different views because you have Belgian ales and people are like, all right, Belgian ales are sour, right? You're like, eh, not really. And they can be pale. They can be dark. But the, the biggest thing for Belgian ales is it's going to be a little bit more fruity. It's going to be a little bit banana. You get some spiciness to it. You get clove. You get black pepper. It's And a lot of those flavors are in wine as well. So I think for wine drinkers, it kind of mixes. And then you can kind of do the, do the variation of like, do I like maltier? with those flavors and then you kind of go darker or do you like something that's a little bit clean you can do a belgian pale or saison and then you get to the, the sours and you can have straight sours which are just licking a lemon with some sugar on it <laughs> you know it's like a lemony sour or you can get something that's like these fruited sours which is more like you know having a warhead and the range of how much fruit that folks use is all over the map uh, but usually for wine people who like wine especially white wine more towards belgians more towards saisons and then the dark wines, more towards a fruited sour. One thing I also want to point out here, that because that's a lot of, I mean, let's be honest, there's a lot of types of beers out there. So the best thing that I could probably recommend, and I'm sure both Lauren and Bob would agree to this, is go online and print yourself out a guideline and just kind of check off the boxes, what you like and what you don't like. And that way, you know, you know, moving forward, because it, it can be really confusing at first. But these guidelines have, you know, everything that we talked about, the taste, the aroma, the texture, the feel, color, the ABV, IBU, you know, all the characteristics that go within these beers. You can look them up, see what you like, and then do your checklist. So interestingly, they recently released the 2021 BJCP style guidelines. So the Brewery Judge Certification Program. So uh, for people who like reading, they can go in and read all about the styles. Otherwise, grab the table of contents and there's your checklist. <laughs> I also like to plug breweries too. Like if you go to a brewery, you don't know what you want. Talk to whoever's working the bar. Talk to the people that work there. And if you go to a brewery, if you go to a tap room, they will always let you try it. The cool thing about breweries is we are all about try before you buy not going to be like, well, what do you like here? Drink this, you know, it's try it, see what you can. And that's kind of your best way to, to try a, many different types of beers and be like, all right, I like this. I like that. I don't like this. And it's, it's a nice place to learn. And usually everybody's very supportive because we all like beer drinkers, obviously. And if it's somebody that's like me, I love talking about it and helping people love it. Cause I love it. 
So that is another way to go out and try instead of having to go to a bottle shop and buy six different types of beers and be like, all right, well, this was hit or miss. Okay. That way you can try it. Be like, all right, I like porters. And then you can go to the bottle shop and pick like five different porters and fish out which porter you like. Absolutely. You know, I have a really good friend at work and uh, he has this app that he uses. He tracks like every beer that he's tried and he's tried many beers over different countries. And I think this guy has in the thousands of different beers that he's tried. So there's another way that you can track it as well. Outside of please go ask your brewers, but also there's apps out there to help you track these things. So good old untapped. Guilty as charged. And it's great to know what I've had before. And if I really liked it, because if I did, I can go get it again. And if I didn't, I can pick something new off a menu if I am going to go for the just buy it and try it model. Agreed. Well, perfect. So we really laid the groundwork for the rest of the show by providing a quick intro to the brewing industry, how far it's come and what the current status is, along with an establishment of the characteristics you can experience from beer and what beer types make up the pillars of the industry. So when we come back from this commercial break, Lauren, Bob, and I will be explaining the first couple steps of the brewing process and the science behind it. No spoilers allowed, so stay tuned. Have you ever been standing in the shower looking at the ingredients on your shampoo bottle and noticed that water is always the first ingredient? Well, I have. After a little research, I discovered that shampoo is over 80% water, which is kind of like dumping bottled water on your head while you're standing in a shower. And that's why I'm excited that I found Seabar, a disposable plastic free hair care line that cleans up ocean trash with every purchase. Not only does Seabar pick up one pound of ocean trash for every item ordered, but their salon quality shampoo and conditioner concentrates come from refillable applicators, kind of like deodorant tubes. Just twist them up, rub it on over your hair a couple times, and then just lather it up like you normally would. My favorite part is how long they last. I've personally been using the same C-Bar for three months now and I've barely used any. So not only does it help save the environment, it's also effective, efficient, and most importantly, it saves me money. If you would like to try a better way to wash your hair, head on over to cbar.com and use our special code STEAM for 15% off your first order. C-Bar, shampoo done right for you and the planet. Welcome back to the second segment of the Science of Brewing. This segment will be all about the first couple legs of the brewing process, more like the meat and potatoes, in my opinion, which involves malting, mashing, and boiling. So let's get right into it, shall we? The first step of the brewing process heavily involves what you would commonly know as grains or cereal crops. Bob, would you mind addressing some typical types of grains that are used? Sure. Uh, the vast majority of grain used in brewing is barley, um, either two-row or six-row. And then there are some operations through the malting process that will change the character of that barley to give us a lot of the creative ingredients that are used in making the styles that we've already talked about. I think most everyone has probably tried a wheat beer at some point. Uh, wheat is another crop that commonly shows up among the cereal set. And, and those are the two sort of base grains, if you will. There are other adjunct grains uh, and adjunct products that are used. Oatmeal stout draws heavily upon oats, as do Northeast IPAs. Um, they provide a bit of a smoothness, smooth character to the sip. Uh, and then when you get into some of the macrobreweries that are trying to save a little bit of money, uh, other interesting raw materials include corn and rice, things for which you can get good sugar at relatively low cost by comparison to using a, a cereal grain like a barley or a wheat. 
Then if we're looking for gluten-free uh, as opposed to gluten-reduced, we can go for a, a sour gum or similar uh, in order to get a, a, another element to brewing for those that uh, can't do the gluten thing. If we want to talk macros, they do still use barley. They use barley uh, for the base, which used to be mostly six-row, uh, which is kind of most pre-prohibition used uh, six-row before two-row. People want to know the difference. Honestly, it's just how many kernels per row on the grain. Most uh, craft brewers, we use two-row, and honestly, the, the macros are starting to go to two-row now because of diastatic power. When I say diastatic power of two-row, diastatic power is how well that starch in the grain is going to convert to sugar. And two-row is a little bit higher. The kernels are a little more plump. It's also cheaper. Uh, <laughs> I really want to get into it. But so for a lot of the, the big dogs, what they'll do is they will use the, the corn and the rice to, it's a cheaper adjunct to use and it does cheapen the beer, but it's also something for it to dry out. Uh, and it is an extract that they use. They don't use like, at least for craft side, anytime I use corn or rice, it's usually in a flaked form. Uh, you can also get some that are in different forms and then you can cook them in order to use them to get the sugars converted. But yeah, they're actually using syrups and adjuncts, which is great. It's super efficient, but you have to be if you're making, you know, 300,000 barrels a year. But yeah, so Budweiser uses rice and then uh, I believe it is Coors uses corn. And there's there's others in there too that folks use. But yeah, that's they don't just use corn or rice. There is barley. In there. It's just subsidized. Yeah, I think it's important to note here just before we move on is that whenever we're talking about these malt bills, these uh, these grain bills that's used, it's never really just one type of grain. It's always like a mix and match to get what you want in terms of your profile. But before we get into the first couple steps of the brewing process, I wanted to quickly address the underlying impacts of water on the process of brewing at large. Because depending upon the chemical composition of your water, your brewing results could potentially be skewed. And of course, water isn't the same everywhere you go chemically. <laughs> so it's really good to know what's in your water primarily. That way you can effectively plan for those influences throughout the process. Bob, would you mind adding to that and maybe giving an example? The first thing that comes to my mind is water hardness. So yeah, water plays a serious role in beer figuring. It's the primary component in the product, right? What we're doing is we're generating a modified form of, of water that we all enjoy and it's carbonated and relatively flavored state. So the choices of what's in the water and, and getting to particular ion concentrations is important to some styles. Uh, Northeast IPA is one. Um, looking at trying to balance your chlorides and your sulfates. Another, uh, in terms of geography, is Burton-upon-Trent, England. All the way back in the 1700s, there's a long brewing tradition that starts there where breweries were accumulating there. It's recognized as one of the best waters for IPA. And there is a process called Burtonization by which people will take their water and modify it to match the Burton-upon-Trent ion profile in order to try and replicate that uh, to give the same character to their beers. Well, thank you. So, Lauren, let's move over to malting. What is malting and why do we do it? And Bob, please feel free to chime in and add on to whatever Lauren has to say. But I'm curious about the science behind it. Yeah, so malting is a process. So when we get, we may use barley or if we use, if we use wheat or any of the other grains we, we get, they do need to be malted. And the reason for that is, is so what malting does is you're going to take this plant, you're essentially trying to get it to seed. Okay. What we're looking at is for the seeds. 
And then what happens is when you malt it, you soak that grain in some water. And what that's going to do is it's going to make it germinate. When it germinates, it gets the little sprouts and the sprigs. And then around those in the kernel is going to be the endosperm. Okay. The endosperm is what we want as brewers. We want that because that's where all the starch is. That's where all that starch that we are then going to convert to sugar. Uh, so without them malting the grain, I wouldn't be able to do much with it. And it makes that endosperm nice and plump. I get more bang for my buck. The other reason that uh, malting is important is due to the enzymes. So the enzymes that brewers manipulate within the grain begins with malting. Okay. So there are a couple different stages of malting. You know, for your base grain, whatever you're going to, you know, use that's just to get your sugar. That's just kilned. And when I say kilned, it's a long process uh, and it's slow. It's low and slow, kind of like smoking meat. And, you know, at that point, what you're doing is you're just kind of drying it out a little bit, preserving it. That's pretty much all you're doing. And then you can also kiln further down to where you get uh, some malts that are called Munich and Vienna malts, which are used a lot in lagers. Uh, and what that does is they're kiln just a little bit more. It's going to get you a little bit more bread, more toast notes within your beer. You can get some crystal malts that are kiln and you can get some crystal malts that are not, they're roasted. And when with a crystal malt, uh, that's what's going to give you some caramel flavor, some, some of that sweetness. Uh, and it also gives you color because it's further kilned or it's roasted. If you get a crystal or a caramel malt, the two names are interchangeable. They both mean the same thing. Uh, what that's going to do is it's going to give you sweetness because at that point, the starches that are in the endosperm have been converted already to sugars and caramelized. Uh, and that's what's going to give you that sweetness. Uh, there, you don't get as much of the fermentable sugar from that uh, because it is caramelized, but you do get a lot of flavor. You get a lot of residual sweetness. The yeast isn't going to be able to, to break that sugar down. Uh, so you are going to get a little bit more sweetness to your beer, a little bit more body to your beer. And then you get into your darker malts, which are roasted. Roasting happens fast and it dries it out. And you get what you would think from roasting. You get some of that dark chocolate, some of that roast coffee, uh, a little bit of the darker fruit flavors from those malts. Uh, and that's kind of like the, the short end of like the million malts that we can use because uh, there's different brands, there's different variations for crystal malts. There's, they're separated by color and the color is usually based on a scale that's a lava bond scale. So you have like crystal 20, 40, 60, up all the way up to, to 120. And that kind of tells the brewer a couple of things. The lower kilned, so the lower color, it's going to give you a little bit more sweetness less color. And then if you get more towards the higher, it means you're going to get more of those dark fruit, little bit of that dark caramel flavor from those malts, less sweetness. That kind of gets into it. And then you have uh, you have some adjuncts. You have wheat, rye. Those two, it's important to note, they don't have husks on them, which we can kind of get into later when we talk about mashing, about why that's important, not important. The one thing to note when you are choosing malts is if you do find something that is dehusked, or does it come with husk? So if you get uh, like chocolate rye as a roasted rye grain, you're going to get less roast, less of that roasty bitterness from those grains. And then you have your flaked, which if you like New England IPAs, you do use flaked, you do use a lot of wheat. Those have a lot of protein in them, which do contribute to haze. Uh, they also have a lot of beta-glucans, which for me and in, in my brewer's term are, are the gummy gums. It's a protein. It makes it nice and it adds to your body. It does great things, and it also does horrible things when you when we start talking about mashing, which we can get into as well. Yeah, so that's kind of the gamut of the the malting and why they're malted and why which ways they're malted. Uh, but yeah, a brewer is going to use that. It's the meat of the beer, I think. You know, if you're making a recipe, 
for food, like this is the recipe. I would say hops are more your spice. Yeast is a little bit of spice. That's your temperature kind of, but the malt is the, it's the meat of the recipe. Two quick thoughts. The first, I love the recipe analogy. Interestingly, in a recipe, uh, amounts and units are really important. And as we go down that love bond scale, we're typically going to end up using less and less of those really dark grains because otherwise we completely overpower beer in a, a very roasty way, potentially. The other, uh, and Lauren talking about kilning, I think, is interesting to go all the way back to where you started, Sam, with the Sumerians. And that the beer that the Sumerians were making was a little bit more like a porridge and was actually done by accident the first time. It was grains left out that got wet and then began this the malting process that then ultimately stepped accidentally through all these phases and suddenly you had this semi-alcoholic porridge. And that makes the kilning important in order to increase the shelf life of these grains so that we don't have to buy them and immediately use them. They can actually stick around for a month or two in their uncracked form. We don't have to worry about it. Um, and then we can mill them down as we need them without having to buy them on a daily basis. Yeah, I guess before we get in the mashing, we should talk about why we mill grains. Good call. <laughs> For brewing, you have to mill the grains. If you don't mill the grains, there's no way for you to get to that endosperm, and your your sugar conversion is going to be not great. Uh, so the reason that you crack the grains is for a couple of reasons. One is you crack them in a way that you're not pulverizing them. You don't want to pulverize them. What you want is that kernel to be broken in half, and that's going to expose that starchy endosperm, and then that allows me to get it hydrated when I mash and the enzymes to do their job. The other thing it does, it also breaks up the husk of the grains that have husks. And that's great for a brewer because they actually act as a little bit of a filtration agent. If we didn't have them, everything would be gummy and a mess. I mean, we have technology to help us with that somehow, but it would still be a mess. <laughs> I have a great analogy to go off of the meat label that you slapped on this aspect for malting, is that if you think about it, we were talking about temperature and time, right? You know, low and slow, you're going to get more of, of a lager aspect, something, you know, if you're doing low and slow versus fast and, and high heat, you're going to burn your meat. Whereas if you cook it low and slow, you'll get a different product. It's very interesting to think about it in terms of temperature and time and then look at the spectrum on what beer profile that you're going for. So just to recap, we have some sort of a grain bill, which can be made up of many different combinations of grain depending upon your beer style. Then the first thing that we have to do to the grain is put it through the malting process, which is simplistically steeping, germinating, and then kilning the grain to extract the specific enzymes and starches needed for the beer type you are chasing. So the second step is the mashing process. Lauren, would you mind walking us through what, how, and why of the mashing process? Well, the mashing process in very simple things is you're going to soak that now cracked grain in some warm water. What that warm water is going to do is going to activate the enzymes that are already in the grain. There's two major enzymes that we are worried about as brewers. Three, if you're if you're worried about decoction mashing, which we can get into in a minute. Uh, and what that does is it's converting the starch. You want to convert those starches to sugar. Starches get converted to sugar. Yeast gets happy and eats it up. And then we get alcohol and that makes us happy. So there's a big temperature range that you can do for mashing. And when, I, when I'm talking about mashing right now, I'm talking about single infusion. And so what that means is I have a vessel, I have all my grain in it, I use one temperature water in it, and then that's it. Okay. And then we can talk about decoction mashing, which is for lagers, that's a big portion of what you do for a lager and what traditional lager breweries do. 
So the temperature range you usually want to have whenever you're mashing is 148, 158 is usually the range. So there are two different enzymes for the their diastatic enzymes. When I say diastatic, I'm talking about starches being converted to sugars that are used. You have beta amylase, you have alpha amylase, okay? So if you're mashing lower, okay, lower temperature, that's going to lead to a drier beer. And if you're mashing towards 158, it's going to lead to more of a, a beer with more body because more residual sugars will be left because alpha amylase, what the starch chain is, they kind of cut it in half, okay? That's all they do. They take that complex sugar chain, cut it in half. Then the beta amylase is going to take that half and cut it into little bits. Those little bits yeast love. It's like the fast food French fries for them. They're like gobbling it up, easy for them to convert. When you have these longer sugar chains, it's a little bit harder for the yeast to break it down. Uh, and some of those sugars, they're not really happy. So that's what leads to more body. So if you mash lower, you're going to have more of that. Uh, you have some of the alpha enzyme going, and then you have more of the beta enzyme going. So all those sugar chains have been cut in half, cuts it in little pieces, and that's why it's drier. If you mash a little bit higher, you're going to have less of that beta amylase. So you don't get as many of those sugar chains broken down as much. And that's what gives you your body and your residual sweets. So to kind of put that into perspective, if you're going to have a nice crispy lager, I'd say you're going to be in within the like 148 to 152 range. 152 is, I like to say that that's like the brewer's sweet spot where you're just going to get your run of the mill kind of body. It's not going to be too thin. It's not going to be too thick. Eh. For your West Coast IPAs, for your Irish Reds, for your some of your brown ales, that's where you're going to be. If you want something that's super crispy, like a Saison, you want it to be dry, you want it to be a little bit more effervescent, that's when you're going to get down to your 148, 150 range. You want to go higher. If you want an Imperial Stout, you're looking at 158. There are brewers that go higher than that, depending on what they want to do. For a New England IPA, I would say probably 156 to 158, depending on what you're trying to do, if it's a double, if it's a single. Yeah, and that's single infusion mashing. When lagers were being made, the grain that we have now is very modified. It's very easy for us to get what we need to out of the grain. Whereas grain back then, it wasn't as modified. So brewers kind of had to modify it themselves. And the way they did that is, is called decoction mashing. And then you could do a, a single decoction, you could do a double, you can do a triple. When I think about decoction mashing, when I worked at a lager brewery, everything was in Celsius in my mind at Celsius. So I apologize if I talk in Celsius and not in Fahrenheit right now. So what we would do is we, when we mash in, instead of just mashing in at whatever temperature I wanted it to be. So say, you know, I want 152, which is around, I think, 68 Celsius. We would actually mash much lower than that. We would mash it like 45 to 60 uh, degrees Celsius. And the reason we would do that is that's your protein rest. That temperature range is going to break down your proteins. Okay. And that also breaks down some of the proteins around the enzymes that help to unlock the diastatic enzymes. It's just breaking down that grain a little bit more. Then you take that grain and then you're going to push it up to whatever if you want alpha beta in the middle range. Okay. And then what we would do is you take a portion of that grain and you put it aside. You say, all right, you're going to sit over there you sit over there and then you take another portion of that grain. You're just going to heat up this one little portion of grain and that one little portion of grain. Then you mix it back in to the other portion of grain that brings the full temperature of the grain up. And you can either do that one or two times. You know, when I was doing loggers, if we did a double, we would we'd do our protein rest. We would do our main diastatic rest and then we would move the grain over and you do what's called a, it's a cook. You're boiling the grain. Uh, what that's going to do is it actually it's like searing meat 
our toasting bread. It gives you Maillard reactions. That enables the brewer to make a lager that's super flavorful, but also crisp. Now, if you, if you have a lot of lagers and, and it just you're just like, wow, there's so much flavor to this, but they're still very crisp. What is this flavor? It's usually from that. It's usually from the cook. That cook also does two things. It gives you Maillard reactions, and then once you mix that with the other grain, it raises your temperature up, whether that is to be your your beta rest or your sorry your alpha rest uh so you can get more conversion or or if you're just trying to do a mash out which a mash out temperature is going to be 168 or above and what that's going to do is it's going to stop that conversion because you do want to stop it you don't want it to keep going run wild so that's kind of how decoction mashing works in like a tiny little nutshell but that is usually how old school lager brewers did it and it was because the grain was not as modified and you, know, you are going to get a lot more flavor out of it. You do get a little bit more conversion. I enjoyed doing it as a brewer because I felt like I was having a little bit more hands-on uh, with the beer. So that's, I think, the gist of mashing. I think I got all, all the, the main points. <laughs> let, let me circle back to one thing just because we talked water before, and I think water is an important thing to, to talk about now as well um, in a couple elements. Lauren was talking about these enzymes, alpha and beta amylase. There's a pH that they're really happy at. Um, so as home brewers, we're typically using some sort of adjunct in order to get us to a pH of 5.2, right? Water off your tap is somewhere between 7 and 7.4. From a professional sense, acidulated malt or otherwise, or buffers if you want to use that, can also bring you down to that 5.2 space in order to, to make your enzymes as happy as they can be to perform their reactive duty. The other element is there's uh, water in this, as Lauren said, to hydrate the grain. And depending on the beer that we're making, we may want to make it a thinner or a thicker mash. Right, you may want it to be a little more like runny oatmeal or really thick oatmeal, depending. And that changes the rate at which some of these starches break down and the enzymes are able to do their job. And is also uh, challenged by things like imperial beers. So making really high alcohol beers, we want to start our mash a little thinner because the generation of sugars is actually going to slow down that enzymatic reaction. And since imperial beers are higher alcohol, meaning they start with higher sugars, I want to dilute it a little bit at the beginning so I can keep their concentrations lower and keep those enzymes active longer to bring those sugars out of the grain. Beautiful. I have nothing to add because you've covered it all. <laughs> I was gonna, the only thing I was going to throw out was, was about dextrins in terms of getting body, but I think, I think it was well. You know, when, when, Lauren was, when, when Lauren was talking about that alpha amylase, Right. You know, I, I guess I, I look at the sugar breakdown, the starch breakdown problem a little bit like tree pruning. If you're out pruning with a set of scissors, right, that's beta amylase. And if you're going to prune your tree with an axe, that's alpha amylase. So it's going to chop down. And when it makes that swing, that's where you're going to get those dextrans that'll hang around. And, and if it doesn't get chopped down enough, there's your, there's your body amount. That's beautiful. <laughs> I like that. Now we have our wart, so to speak. So the creation of wort involved a combination of heat and temperature that essentially scrubbed the malts kernels from their soluble starches and activated the enzymes to break down those starches into sugars. As already noted, this part is you know, super important because it determines the sugar concentration that will be consumed by the yeasts in fermentation to create your ABV or alcohol by volume. Before we hop <laughs> into the next step, uh, in the brewing process, which is the boiling process. Let's talk about hops. What do hops do for a brew in terms of mouthfeel, taste, aroma, and other characteristics? A whole lot. Uh, so hops, I always talk about this because hops can be kind of a controversial subject, especially for people who don't like bitter beers. And, and my 
go to is every beer is going to need hops. I, I had a a mentor one time that explained it this way to me, and I was like, dude, that makes sense. If you drink a soda, all right, what balances that Coke is that carbonation. If you didn't have that carbonation, it would be this cloyingly sweet drink. Hops are like that carbonation for beer. If we didn't have hops, if we don't have some hops, that bitterness balance, if you don't have that balance, it's going to be cloying, it's going to be sweet. You're going to be like, mm, this is weird. Uh, so ho- you need hops. We need some of that bitterness to kind of balance that flavor, okay? Doesn't that mean that it's a surfactant? So it's like, it's a substance that decreases the surface tension of a liquid. So it allows for the bubbles from the carbonation to, you know, become trapped in the head of the beer. So hops do aid in, in head retention a little bit. Yes. So yes. Okay. Oh, cool. Good job, I mean, That's always something that slips my mind is, oh yeah, hops are good for head retention. So yeah, there are three things that we are trying to get from hops, depending on what kind of beer you are making. You know, if I'm making a dark beer, if I'm making an imperial stout, especially if it's a pastry stout, the hops are there to balance the sugar. I don't really need any flavor from them. I need that bitterness to balance the sugar. Now, if I'm making something like this, the hops are super important to this. For a New England IPA, they are super important. They are kind of the showcase, okay? You want that malt to be there. You want to have that grainy flavor. You want to have that sweetness. You want to have that body. But so I'll be honest, the showcase is the hops. You know, we can talk about hopping as why it's important and what we do, you know, the hops are always usually added to either the boil or cold side. There are some folks that are doing the the mashing hopping, which cool. The reason that hops are bitter and add bitterness is because they have alpha acids that need to be isomerized. And by isomerized, what happens is, is if you add heat and time to those alpha acids, they change from just your regular alpha acids to the, the bittering alpha acids. Okay. So if you're going to mash with the hops, you're, I already told you what the temperatures were. You usually get isomerization with hops about 170-ish and above. It's debatable. Some people will say it's higher. Some people will say it's lower. Some people say you get isomerization and dry hopping, which I don't disagree, but we'll get into that in a minute. So you need the heat. You need the time. But, you know, we just talked about mashing. If the highest we're getting is 158, you're not going to get much isomerization out of it, or you'll get less. So, you know, for a lot of the a lot of the hazy IPAs, some people are doing the, the mashing hopping. But for the way I learned... And the way that most folks use it, hopping is done in the boil so that you can get that isomerization. Usually in the boil, if we're talking traditional brewing and not hazy IPA brewing, you kind of have three categories of when you add those hops and what they do. All right, so a boil is either 60 or 90 minutes usually, uh, depending on what you're trying to do. And if you're your first edition, which is either going to be at that 60 or 90 minute mark, usually those are your bittering hops. They're going to have the most heat, the most time on that heat. You're going to have the most isomerization of those hops. You're going to have the most bittering acids. Uh, usually when brewers pick hops for the bittering addition, you're not really concerned much about what that flavor of hop is going to be because that bitterness is going to take over. You're not going to get much flavor out of those hops. You're not going to get much aroma. Then usually halfway through the boil, those are our flavor flavor hop additions. You're not going to get as much bitterness from those because you only have half the time on the heat. So you are going to get some more of that flavor, some more of that aroma. And then at I always call it late hopping. You know, if you're traditionally brewing, it's usually the 15 minute towards the end addition. For me, it's anywhere from 15 minutes to the end of boil to flame out. When I say flame out, I mean you're cutting the fire. Those are going to be more aromatic. You're going to get a lot more flavor. You're going to get a lot more aroma from those hops. Not much bitterness. You know, and then we can talk about whirlpool hops. So, you know, in the boil, we do a thing at the end of the boil. It's called a whirlpool. So we're going to spin that liquid 
in a whirlpool in a circle. And what that's going to do, you know, when you have a boil, you're you're going to have all this hot matter that you tossed in. Your proteins coagulate. I don't want that in my final product. What that whirlpool is going to do is it's going to push it together. But at the same time, while I'm spinning this beer around, I don't have any heat on it. So if I toss hops in there, you're going to get a buku of aroma and flavor on those. So for the hazy IPAs, since we don't want a lot of bitterness, usually what you'll do is you'll toss hops in that whirlpool. That is the only hot side addition you'll do because I don't want much isomerization. I want tons of flavor. I want tons of aroma. Anytime I'm doing a beer, whether it's something that I want to get, I just made a beer that's a Pennsylvania swanky. It's a resurrection. It's essentially an English mild a dark mild uh, that has a little bit of an anise flavor, and I didn't really want to put anise in the beer, so I actually found these hops from Poland uh, that have an anise and licorice aroma. And what I did is I used a little bit of them for bittering, but you know I threw bukus of them at five minutes because I know that that's going to give me that aroma and flavor. That's where you're going to get it from. And I got a couple of things here that I think would be interesting to sort of add on to your discussion, right? Particularly the anise thing, I think, is neat in that these hops are little pine cones. All right, and the way you know we use them in brewing and homebrewers get them and the pros tend to use them is they're compressed down into these pellets. And the, when we throw that in, all right, we're putting vegetal matter into the boil. So that whirlpool that Lauren is talking about is basically trying to achieve on a brewer scale the same thing that any of us tea drinkers would do when we stir our, our cup of tea and all the tea leaves collect at the bottom center. Right, we're trying to generate the tea leaf effect on a very large scale in order to capture all that vegetable matter so that it doesn't move on any further in the process. Let's keep that here in the boil. They also contain hop oils. The alpha acids she talked about, that's our bitterness. And then we've got these hop oils, and that's what's going to convert to give some of these aromas and flavors, and that each hop has its own distribution of hop oils and difference. So the variability that we get when you pick the anise hop from Poland versus Nelson Sauvin from New Zealand, which is grown on the same hills that make a really wonderful Sauvignon Blanc, and sure enough, that hop imparts a bit of a white wine character to, to the beers it's in. Um, so those oils play a key role. I want to talk a little bit about isomerization, right? That reaction that takes these alpha acids and conducts an isomerization, which in essence is a reaction that does rearrangement without giving up any molecules. I'm a legophile, so I really like Legos. And if you think about a three long Lego piece, right? A reaction might break that piece into little bits or would stick other Legos to it. Isomerization is the equivalent of taking a three piece Lego and building that 90-degree three-dot Lego. It rearranges its shape, but it doesn't change the number of dots on the top of it, if you will. Last but not least, the, the isomerization reaction. I, I scratched my head a little bit on the cold side. I'm with Lauren. You sounded a little skeptical when you talked about isomerization occurring in the... Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's some studies out that it does happen. I think it's debatable. Uh, I think it's perceived bitterness from the hop oils, but had to throw it out there, but... <laughs> As, as a chemical engineer, uh, you know, I learned about Arrhenius kinetics, and that is that reactions occur faster at higher temperatures. So I'm sure isomerization may occur in the fermenter if we've got enough energy to overcome the activation barrier for all your reaction engineers out there. But it's just not going to be anywhere near the rate of what takes place inside that boil kettle, frankly. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. That makes sense. Now, can either of you comment on this, that it's also antimicrobial? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's why IPAs were popular way back when that's why hops kind of got their fame and people started hopping beers more is in, in order for the beers to keep they needed to raise the alcohol and they needed to raise the hopping the cool thing about hops is when i do put hops on cold side so heads up anything cold side has to be sterile as sterile as you can get i can just toss hops in uh, i don't have to sterilize them i don't because they are antimicrobial 
They're also very good for sleep. And if, for those of you who don't know, they are a cousin of the cannabis plant. And the terpenes that are in cannabis, a lot of the terpenes that people are talking about with cannabis are already in hops. And there's a lot of research on, on the effects of, of both. Interesting. I'm going to have to look into that. Well, wonderful. Just to fully recap this segment, the brewing process starts by malting the grains that you pre-selected by steeping, germinating, and drying them to bring out the starches and enzymes. After malting, then mashing ensues where you strip the grains of their starches, so then the enzymes break down the starches to form wort, which is sugar and water. Then the wort is boiled in a boil kettle for a prescribed amount of time with a hot bill that can provide appropriate bitterness, flavor, and aroma relative to the beer style you are going for. So when we return from the break, we are going to talk about the fermenting and filtering stages of the brewing process, along with the science behind the scenes. Stick around and find out. Hey, my fellow listener. If you love what you are hearing, my team and I would greatly appreciate it if you threw us some spare change, you know, just so we can continue to make this show better and better for you. To do this, head to our website, everythingsteve.org, and click on the donate button in the top right corner, or go to our support us page. Whichever you choose works for us. If that's too much work, we totally get it. You can slide me some dough via Venmo, and my tag is at ProZoomStudent. Or conveniently, if you don't have Venmo, throw us some cash on the Cash App. Our tag for Cash App is at EverythingSteam. And at last resort, there's always a subscription option on our official Anchor.fm page. You can subscribe to us monthly for just merely 99 cents. Listen, any little bit helps. And just so you know, we are honored to serve you as your source for STEAM information. So thank you for your continued support. And as always, stay curious. What's going on, everyone? Hope you are enjoying this episode on the science of brewing so far. Please be sure to fill out the poll at the end of the episode on which type of brew best fits your palate, meaning... What's your favorite type of beer? You can partake in that poll wherever you get your podcast from, and we look forward to seeing those results. If you have any fun beer-related questions, be sure to send us a quick email or DM us on social media. We're always willing to have a chat about steam topics. This segment is gauged more towards the latter portion of the brewing process involving fermentation and filtering. Hey, Bob, I have a quick question just to get this segment started. Could you explain why we ferment our wort and maybe explain how the science checks out? Sure. Uh, So moving from the hot side to the cold side, and uh, we ferment in order to get to our target, which is beer. Um, Right. We took that bitter wort out of the boil kettle, and it's basically well-hopped sugar water. If we want to get to a beer with some alcohol in it, then we need another organism to help us out and, and do some more reaction. So in this case, we're going to take advantage of yeast. And that yeast um, takes what is hopefully a well-oxygenated wort, and because there's oxygen, right, yeast in the presence of oxygen will grow more yeast, which is good. We want to get our yeast count up. And once the oxygen runs out, yeast changes its metabolism. It goes from aerobic to anaerobic metabolism. And it then says yeast in the presence of sugar is very happy to produce carbon dioxide and ethanol. So that's the fermentation operation. That reaction will take place until the yeast peters out uh, or until the sugars it can eat are effectively gone. Flashing all the way back to the mashing stage that Lauren had talked about earlier, yeast does not have a Dagwood-grade mouth. It only eats small sugars. So glucose, maltose, maltotriose, one-ring, two-ring, three-ring sugars, that's it. So 
If we make that in the mash, then the yeast will be happy to convert it to alcohol. Everything else sticks around and will ultimately contribute to residual sweetness and body, terms you've already heard. Yeah, one thing I also want to add there is that you also, like you said, you get carbon dioxide out of this, which is super important for the carbonation steps, um, especially if you know, you're trying to bottle something or, or create an end product. I'd say you know, it's also pretty important to note that the type of yeast that you use creates different beers. So Lauren, what types of yeasts are common for the pillar beers we touched on earlier? So Saccharomyces is the big genus for all of our fermentations. You know, we have ale yeast and we have lager yeast. Those are kind of the two subcategories. So ale yeast likes warmer temperatures. And by warmer temperatures, I mean anywhere between usually the, the sweet spots, 60 to 70 degrees, unless you're doing something that's a, a Belgian style or the new Kvike, the Norwegian strains. Those are fermented much higher. And with that, you know, when you're fermenting a yeast warmer, yeast, it's a little bit more active. Uh, it's going to ferment a little faster. It's a little bit more active. And when you have more active yeast, those yeasts are going to put off more byproducts of fermentation. Uh, and some of those we like and some of them we don't like. The ones we like are like the fruity flavors that come from it. If you're doing Belgian yeast, those are going to be, you know, in kind of the 70, 80 degree range. And those kind of put off like the banana, the clove, the spice, the pepper. Uh, and those are called esters that they put off. They throw these things off while they're fermenting. They also throw off some stuff that we don't like, which is why, you know, when you're fermenting, you want to make sure that the yeast has done its job. Is when it's done fermenting and it's done putting off all these byproducts, the yeast actually will reabsorb them and metabolize them as well. For some of these things uh, like diacetyl, it's a kind of a brewer's term, and, uh, and it tastes kind of like toffee, butterscotch, butter flavor. And it's something that the yeast just kind of produces on its own. While it's fermenting, this is something it produces, and you just need to give it time to, to eat it up. So some of the things we like, some of the things we don't like, but yeah, so ale yeast kind of ferments in that range. Those are going to be all your IPAs. A lot of the beers that you drink are going to be ale yeast beers. They're going to be ales. And then you have lager yeast. Lager yeast kind of prefer the colder temperatures. And when I say colder, you're usually in the 50s range. Some of those can go a little bit higher. Some of them can go a little bit lower, depending on what you're doing. Usually the 50s, at least the lager yeast I like to use is, is the 50s. It's a little slower to ferment, but also it's a little slower to ferment, but um, also it puts off some byproducts that you have to do something. The reason a, a lager is called a lager is because of lagering. It's a process you do after it's fermented where you let the beer sit uh, at a cooler temperature, not necessarily cold enough to the where the yeast stops working, not necessarily warm enough to where it's really super active. But what that does is it aids that lager yeast in eating up some of the byproducts. So a lot of the byproducts of a lager yeast is sulfur, for example. And those are the two main uh, yeast groups for a fermentation period, for those who want to know how long it takes. For an ale yeast, to be honest, your primary fermentation is usually done within a couple days, and then you need to let it pitter out and finish its job. So you're usually looking 7 to 14 days on an ale yeast. For home brewers, stick to 14 days, guys. Play it safe, unless you have a way to collect gravity readings and do some testing. Keep it at 14 days. Sometimes longer, you know, sometimes longer is good too. But, you know, for pro brewers, for us professionals, we have a lot of fancy equipment that allows us to test this stuff, find out when it's done, and we can do diacetyl tests and figure out some things. But the primary, the bulk of that, like, heavy-duty fermentation with an ale yeast is usually done within the first three to five days. For lager yeast, it's a little bit longer. You know, it's slower just because it's a colder temperature, but it likes that colder temperature. If you were to ferment a lager yeast higher, it's going to put off a bunch of stuff you're not going to want bunch of those esters you're not going to like. So those are the two major yeasts 
it's not the same as bread yeast, although you can make beer with bread yeast. It's interesting. But yeah, they're they're Saccharomyces. And if you look at the name Saccharomyces, it tells you what it does. Sack, sugar, eats the sugar, first to ethanol. Quick question for you on the, the lager side of things, just be like homebrew to pro, because I'm, I'm curious, right? If I'm making a lager, I have the lager fridge so I can ferment cool. And then I always bring it up for about seven days to more like 60 degrees Fahrenheit in order to encourage the yeast to actually take in that diacetyl and let that reaction sort of occur to clean it up a little bit before I bring it back down to lager. The shaking head there says you probably don't do that from pro side. Pro brewers do, and this is what I do with ales and lagers. We do a, what's called a VDK rest. Uh, it's a diacetyl rest. It's at the end of fermentation. So usually when you hit about 60% attenuation, for those who cannot check gravity readings every day, I would say around day four is a safe day. You raise the temperature up five degrees above what your primary fermentation temperature is, what that's going to do. So diacetyl is uh, it's something, it's a byproduct of yeast. The yeast will end up taking it up. If you, for some reason, have diacetyl in your beer and you don't want it there and you haven't crashed your beer, you haven't cooled it down, the thing that's going to take away that diacetyl is temperature and time. Okay, so if the yeast is warm, if the yeast takes a little bit, has some more time to work before you chill it down, it'll eat it up. So what that does is it just kind of facilitates that process. Uh, so what we do is, you know, for us, it's 60% attenuation, I would say, if you're home brewing day four or day five, you're in the window of, okay, you're past that primary really vigorous fermentation stage so that if you do raise it five degrees, you're not going to get off flavors at that point or not enough off flavors to make a noticeable difference, but you are going to raise that yeast up to get it to do what you want faster. The problem with uh, crashing it beforehand is once you crash a beer and it has either the precursor to diacetyl, which I can't say the name because it's a really long scientific name and I'm just not great at it. VDK, if it has VDK, once you crash a yeast, the yeast then resets. Uh, it's like, all right, I'm ready for having respiration and then fermentation. So it's done with the fermentation phase and it won't eat up that diacetyl anymore. So what I tell all of my brewers and what I tell everybody is, you know, if you, you suspect it, just don't crash it. Give it a little bit more time. Raise that temperature a little bit. That yeast will do what you need it to. Cool. So the other thing I just want to say on, on carbon dioxide, right? You said four days vigorous fermentation. Two thoughts. The first, I love walking into a brewery and watching that off-gas line in the bubble off like crazy. The other is that's really important to pull out some of these sulfur and other compounds because you're performing a, an engineering process called scrubbing. Yes. In essence, the bubbles of that carbon dioxide are going to take anything volatile and pull it into the gas phase and then pull it out of the fermenter so that it doesn't stick around and sit in your final product. Yeah, that's a tricky trick that brewers also use. We call it scrubbing, where if you have a beer that's crashed, you're like, that doesn't taste right. If it is a volatile, like if it's a C to aldehyde or something like that, you can pump it with CO2 and scrub it out. And there have been a couple beers where something went wrong and you're just like, all right, scrub it out. And then it does work. So scrubbing does help. Don't want to do it with your IPAs. It will scrub out your aroma. I mean, with most beers, that's one thing you kind of got to think about is if you are dealing with something where you're like, oh, I should scrub this, it will also scrub out things you do want, like hop aroma and flavor. Good point. Well, I think it would be great to talk about also wild versus lab-grown yeast. So, Bob, why do some brewers go after wild yeast, and what does that really mean? So, originally, all the yeasts were wild, right? We've gotten to lab-grown yeast because we want to have very tight control over the characteristics of particular yeasts, and the yeast manufacturers have a, a wide variety of options depending on what styles and characteristics we're trying to target. 
a wild yeast, the way it's deployed today, is literally catching whatever drifts in. So when you look at the Lambic breweries in a very specific region around Brussels, Belgium, they will typically brew on a, a near 32 Fahrenheit winter day. And overnight, they'll leave the louves open and whatever drifts in falls into the beer. And that region has been shown to have organisms that around that time of year generate a very interesting, very high character, somewhat sour beer. It is a complete blend, relatively predictable based on temperature and season. Around 32 Fahrenheit, you're not going to get anything really foul that drifts in. I would not do it on a 60-degree Pittsburgh evening. Um, who knows what we're going to get? It probably not make a really high-quality product. But wild is exactly what it says. It's whatever happens to be out there, and we can test and see if it actually makes a good beer. You don't want a low plume of sulfur, sulfur dioxide, carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide? No. Or lavender. I had a beer that had something sneak in from around the garden next to my garage, and I had a lavender pale ale, and it was pleasant. <laughs> I'll do a little plug here for us Pittsburgh folks, if you guys do want to try a beer. So this is called spontaneous fermentation, uh, and the vessel that you, I say knockout, anytime that you are chilling the wort and putting it into a vessel, we call it knockout as probers. So Trace Brewing in Bloomfield, I think Zach just did his third cool ship beer. Is spontaneous fermented. They have a cool ship room. If you, it's actually like usually they cover it with a table and they have events in there. But then otherwise they take the lid off the cool ship and they brew beer in there and they oh they do the whole shebang where they open the windows and I think it was yesterday the day before he just did one. Uh, so if you guys want to try one, definitely go there. He'll probably uh, brew it and then toss it in a bunch of barrels. Uh, he also has two fooders. For those of you that don't know what fooders are, they're oak fermenters. So everybody that does clean beer, we use stainless. Uh, the oak it's nice because it tastes oaky, but also you can inoculate it with a bunch of grumblies and get a lot of nice flavor out of it. So if you do a cool ship beer, all that wild culture that you get will then stick in the wood and then you kind of develop your own culture that way. But yeah, go to Trace. Try their spontaneous beer. It's going to be great. Definitely. So from my understanding, there's a lot of people or breweries that buy their yeast ready to go. Oh, yeah. But there's also a decent amount of breweries that culture and harvest their own yeast for fermentation. Lauren, could you possibly walk me through the process of cultivation and effectively propagating a strain of yeast? So, I mean, a lot of brewers will buy yeast. If you use a, a brand called Omega, they will actually work with you to make your own blend that way. If you're doing the spontaneous route, that kind of the thing I just told you, where you just kind of re, well, you usually capture the wild yeast, you ferment with it. If you like the way it turns out, you're going to keep it in there and, and nurture it, keep putting it on beer, keep using it. For propagation, for what we've done, yeast is expensive. It's honestly one of the most expensive parts of the brewing process. Uh, so it's usually yeast, then hops, then the malt. Malt's cheap. Yeast is expensive. So a way for a brewery to mitigate that is to propagate. So what you'll do, at least the way that we do it, is uh, you'll get a smaller pitch. We call it yeast pitches. It's, it's however much you're going to get. We call it a pitch. We'll get a small pitch. And what we'll do is if we're brewing a beer, we'll take a portion of that beer and put it in a separate vessel with that yeast that we're going to use maybe a day or two later. Uh, and what we're going to do is we're going to propagate it. So what we're going to do is we're going to trick that yeast into its aerobic phase. We're going to pump that wort and that yeast with continuous oxygen. And what that's going to do is uh, when a yeast is in its aerobic phase, it buds. It makes more of itself. It'll do that, honestly, until there's no more oxygen. So if you keep reintroducing, for the most part, keep introducing oxygen into that wart, 
that yeast is just going to bud and bud and bud. What that does is it makes more and more and more, and then I have enough yeast to brew my big batch. So that's usually what we do, especially for a brewery like mine, uh, where we're making so many different types of beers. Like the one thing we didn't talk about with yeast is there are so many different types of yeast that you use for specific beers. So if you're making a lager, it's going to be a lager yeast, but is it a German lager or is it American lager? Or is it a hybrid? Uh, you know, if you have Anchor Steam, that's a hybrid lager yeast. That's a yeast that's able to ferment a little bit warmer, so it's kind of in between. You know, and then if there's ales, there's yeasts that are kind of curated to each different style. So if I want a hazy IPA, I'm looking for something that's like a Vermont or an English strain. For porters, for stouts, it's usually English. For your West Coast IPAs, it's like a Chico, California strain. And these are all, the, the reason you pick these different strains is they have different characteristics. If you're going to use a Belgian strain, if you're going to make a Belgian or you want a Belgian strain, you want those esters that the yeast is going to produce. And for a brewery that makes many different styles of beer, an easy, cheaper way of doing that is to propagate the yeast. That yeast isn't going to care what kind of beer you use, usually. As long as the temperature there is there and the sugar is there and the air is there, it's going to bud and then you can have a good pitch. We also do a thing that's called harvesting. Uh, and harvesting is, say I have something that used Chico that's in the tank and it's done fermenting and it's already crashed. It's, she's almost ready to package. And before I transfer that to get packaged, there is so much good yeast on that beer that I can reuse. So what we'll do is we'll take that, put it in a sanitary vessel and shoot it into the new beer. Or we can also do something that's called cone to cone, where you just shoot it from one fermenter to the next. And that's what harvesting is for in a pro brewer sense. You can do both of these on a homebrew scale. You know, they'll get the beer off the yeast cake and then they'll put it in some sanitary jars, refrigerate it until the next time they're going to brew. They'll do a little stir plate action just to propagate. A stir plate's a propagator. Okay, so for those of you that do yeast starters, a yeast starter is, a, is a, just a mini homebrew propagation. That little stirrer on the stir plate, what that does is just gets oxygen in that wort. It's just going to make that yeast bud and then you get a pitch. So you can do both of these homebrew style. As long as you're sanitary about it, you can get the yeast cake and then propagate it up and use it for your next batch. It seems difficult. It's actually it's actually pretty easy once you get the hang of it. As long as you're sanitary and use nice oxygen, that yeast will be happy. Most yeasts, at least for me, uh, we don't use past 10 generations. So when I say generations, that's how many different times I pitch it into a new beer. You know, there are yeasts like Chico yeast can last many more generations than that. There are yeasts that don't, so 10 is kind of a nice, happy, sweet spot. Beyond that, they start, sometimes they'll start mutating, uh, especially if you use Kvaik yeast. Kvaik yeast is a Norwegian strain that you can ferment at 100 degrees, and it doesn't give you any, many esters. I won't say any, many esters. It's a beast, but it only lasts maybe 10 generations before you'll notice your fermentation being a little bit different because it's mutated. Mm. Uh, a couple comments from the layman's aspect of this is that you're literally mutating these things. So it's like you're you're invoking evolution through this. That's that's one really cool thing. Secondly, is that it seems simple because it's a play between anaerobic and aerobic processes where you have you either have oxygen or you don't. So that's really cool. It's it's like the you know fermentation aspect is you know, do you have oxygen? Great. We're starting to grow a culture. We're starting to, you know, logistically if you're thinking of logistics side, you know, like a population model, so to speak, you know, you have to have food, you have to have air, you have to have space. So it's a play on that game. And then whenever you take the oxygen away, they start to feed since, you know, this type of fungi evolved at some point to be able to take advantage of these sugars and create CO2 and ethanol. Then 
I think it's really neat. You know, you have an evolved species and you also have uh, a case of logistics with population models. So it's really, really cool. There's a lot of science that's, you know, behind the scenes there that, that we didn't really touch upon. So I wanted to say it in layman's terms from my perspective. Two quick thoughts on science, if you don't mind. The first is the 10 generations thing, right? How do you test if your yeast is still good? They're actually, right? So in essence, you've got some color tests that you can do to say, all right, is the, do I have enough active yeast left in this sample to justify repitching? The other, you know, Lauren is reusing this yeast cone to cone, neat technique. There are breweries that will generate their own house strain, right? And your comment on evolution is exactly it. The same yeast subjected to the same beer ultimately will generate a house strain. And that you can take out and actually grow up in a way that makes it, I'll call it semi-infinitely propagatable, as opposed to just nine or ten generations of beer. Uh, and that in that regard, they have a, a house strain for making that specific beer that gives it some unique character that they're really excited about. I guess it's also important to point out here, there's a lot of science behind this. Um, a lot of science, a lot of math, a lot of engineering. But at the same time, there's a lot of sources out there to help you. So, you know, if you're not as, you know, science savvy, you know, there's people to help you and there's resources to help you as well. So never shy away from kickstarting a dream just because, you know, there's something that you don't understand. You could understand it in time with all these beautiful resources that we have. But the last piece of the puzzle before we jump into the commercial is the filtering process. And the approach to this seems to vary. So I will turn it over to Lauren for the lowdown on why filtering is important and what types of beers it applies to. A couple of ways that, at least commercially, you can filter. We can do a couple of things. You can add um, this stuff called Biofine or gelatin. And what that's going to do is it's going to help that yeast that's in suspension that hasn't flocculated yet. When I say flocculate at the end of fermentation, yeast likes to bind together. That's called flocculation. Uh, different yeasts have different levels of which they want to do that. You know, and if I want my beer to be really clear, I could put some of this stuff in there and it's going to help that yeast settle down. A lot of craft brewers do this because it's way cheaper than buying a filter, way cheaper. Gelatin is not vegan friendly. I'm going to throw that out there. But Biofine is vegan friendly. We all know what gelatin is. Don't use it. <laughs> I've done both. Uh, gelatin, you know, if you've ever used gelatin to actually like use to make gelatin things, whether it's jams, jellies, or jello, you already know that it's a mess. So imagine a bunch of that in a fermentation vessel. It's not great. I mean, it'll clear your beer up, but it getting it out is hard. So then you also have filtering. So I've done two types of filtering. You have uh, usually what's called a lenticular filter. So it's a bunch of plates that have a certain micron that'll allow certain things through. And what that's going to do is that the yeast gets trapped on the plate and then it's not going to get through. Uh, and then that's going to clear up your beer and make it nice and crisp and clear. Uh, there's also sterile filters, which a lot of times that people use sterile filters is if you're going to be distributing your beer further away or if it's going to be on the shelf for a long time, you don't want that yeast to reactivate. You don't want it to keep working. Yeast will keep working no matter what. Uh, and then honestly, after a certain point, yeast does die and then the, the cell explodes and it will put some off flavors in the beer. So if you, you have some of that in there, it's not great. So a lot of people will use a sterile filter uh, if they're going to be shipping their beer or if it's going to be sitting on a shelf, just as a, you know, it's a second little insurance that your beer is going to last and be tasty. And then the third thing that a lot of folks will use is centrifuge. Sure, a lot of people know how a centrifuge works, it spins it around, breaks up everything. The only problem with centrifuges is they're very expensive and they're also very loud. 
they kind of need for at least for in a, in a brewery sense they need their own room usually because they're so loud and the cost so there's kind of like the lowest cost or the highest cost if you're home brewing just get some biofine guys i was always the type of home brewer you know i was home brewing in college i didn't have a lot of money and i was like just do what works biofine will work it's easy it's cheap and it does the job the reason we filter our beers is if you're old school and you're making a lager you know, lagering A will filter the beer on its own. That beer will be pretty clear by the time you're done with that eight-week lagering time because it's just settling, settling, settling. But also, if you're making a West Coast IPA, you want that to be clear. You know, having a visual presence of a beer is satisfying. For a brewery and a drink, say you get an Irish red and it's murky. You're like, I don't know. It's kind of murky. You immediately are like, what's wrong with this? Even if it's a completely, nothing's wrong with it. It's a great tasting beer. You're going to be like, oh, I'm used to these being nice, crisp beer beers. So that's one reason for filtering. The other reason is to get that yeast off of there, to get anything else off of there. It does make the beer last a little bit longer. Uh, and then the third reason is for the sterile filter. If you are going to have that beer sit on a shelf or you're going to have it sit for a while, you do want to make sure that it is completely sterile. Uh, sterile filters are great because they're they're a lot like pasteurization, where you're not going to have to worry about that. Not only does it get yeast out, it also gets if there's any possibility of any crumblies in there that could grow, it does get those out too. Quick note on filtering, right? Much as we had talked before about scrubbing, and sometimes that takes your volatiles out and you'll lose some of your hop oils and things that may contribute to your aroma. There's an open debate in the scientific literature at the moment around uh, filtration and whether or not that is catching certain hot products that ultimately changes the character of your beer across the filter. So just something to be careful about, that if you're going for shelf life stability and capturing to make sure any of the, the bacteria or other microbes might actually get caught, you may actually lose some of your flavor and aroma components at the same time. Yeah, I will say when we did have filters at the brewery I worked that had filters, we did not do any of the IPAs through it because the fact that it would strip the hop oils. Honestly, you could tell with the lagers that we were making, you know, it was cool because you could try it pre-filter and post-filter while you're filtering. And the flavor you would get from the pre-filter beer, I, you, I usually was like, this is great. You have a post-filter, you're like, hey, it's still great, but it loses a little bit of that nice lustery. You're like, oh, flavor. So it does strip some of those compounds away. Good note. Well, thank you so much. Well, great. I think it's time to jump into our last commercial, but stay tuned because when we come back, we are wrapping up the brewing process, discussing some expenses and handing out some advice. So stay tuned. Like what you hear? Do us a favor by giving us a follow, review, and share our content on social media. Everything Steam is conveniently on Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, Facebook, and TikTok. You can listen to our episodes that will feature on platforms such as Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Breaker. If you, the listener, have any content suggestions or want to be a guest star on the show, reach out to Everything Steam via social media, our Contact Us page on our website, or email us at all lowercase everythingsteam3.14 at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and stay curious. And we're back for the last segment of this episode on the science of brewing. This final segment is focused on the end of the process, expenses, and then we'll wrap up with some final thoughts and advice. So carbonation is one of those eye-catching or savory appeals to drinks that many people go for. But there is more to it than just that appeal. Lauren, would you mind explaining why carbonation and nitrogen carbon dioxide infusion is used in the brewing industry? Well, 
Number one, who doesn't like a fizzy drink? I would say, you know, tradition here has usually been carbonated. It's usually been naturally carbonated, which uh, most commercially made beer is not these days. Sorry, guys. Uh, all the carbonation that's produced in fermentation goes into the air and we carbonated ourselves. But traditionally, beer has always been carbonated because what they would do is it would do its primary fermentation and then they would put it probably in casks or in barrels and then it would finish fermenting and then you'd have some carbonation there. Carbonation also, it adds, you know, like I gave it the Coke analogy, it does help give some of that sugary substance a little zip. I don't know if many people have had flat beer. I've had many a flat beer. It's not bad, but it's not great. And the other thing is, you know, carbonation does open up a lot of things about a beer. It's going to open up that flavor for you. It does change the flavor. If you've ever, if you ever homebrewed and tried a beer when it's finished and it's just non-carbonated beer, it's crazy to see the flavor change when you add that carbonation. Because it does scrub out stuff, but it's also scrubbing stuff out in your mouth. So it's, you know, popping some of those things out. And it does bring to life some of the aroma and some of the taste. For you know, the people out there that are super sustainable and you know all about the environment, I just want to say that beer is one of the big players in the carbon dioxide market right now. Beer desalination and um, the pop industry, soda industry, whatever you want to call it, whatever you want to refer to. But yeah, it's escaping into the atmosphere, but we also have a market to draw that CO2 out and then put it back into the beer. So just want to throw out there so people aren't going, oh my gosh, it's so unsustainable. And it's, yeah. They do recapture the CO2. There's a couple ways you can do it. So there are breweries that have a recapturing process, like the big, big guys, where they can recapture that CO2 and then they scrub the CO2 so that it's sterile again, because that CO2, you know, once it's from fermentation, does have some of the yeast in it. You don't really want that when you're trying to carbonate a beer. So yeah, you can recapture it that way. And there are a lot of breweries that have started doing spunding. And what that is, is you are using some of that residual CO2 produced by the yeast to carbonate the beer at the end of fermentation. A lot of people are doing that. It does save CO2. I will say a lot of the CO2 that's uh, in a tank, at the end of the fermentation, we will close up a tank and that CO2 creates head pressure. When we transfer a beer, there are a lot of breweries that will use the head pressure from the tank to kind of balance the pressure in the other tank when you transfer it. So we are reusing that CO2. It's not just going off everywhere. We're like, oh yeah, it's fine. There are breweries that are a little bit more sustainable about it. Everybody reuses CO2 to some. It's not just going to go in, in the atmosphere all the time, but yeah. Okay, so you've either bottled, canned, or kegged your beer. So what's next? Well, typically brewers, well, I, I don't want to say typically because there's speculation, but brewers would move to pasteurizing their beer. But why is that, Bob? And then what is the speculation? So the pasteurization side is if you want to maintain the shell in your beer for a long period of time, particularly if it's going to be stored warm, right? These organisms like to live in a warmer environment. Lauren had talked earlier about 60 to 70 Fahrenheit is good. Well, you find a market shelf, it's going to be 60 to 70 Fahrenheit. So taking a beer and pasteurizing it, either in its container if you've already bottled or canned it, or in a flash pasteurization way where you would actually flow it through a heat exchanger and heat it up for a very short period of time and then bring it back down to a packaging temperature is called flash pasteurization because heat kills. So if we can bring it up to 70 degrees Fahrenheit for 30 seconds, that's enough to kill off pretty much any organism in the beer and that'll protect the shelf life of the product. That's typically more often done by the big guys. I would guess, Lauren, that you are not pasteurizing your beer. I don't know very many craft breweries that are. One of the arguments for store cold, drink quick, 
right? Two rationales. The first is unpasteurized beer stored warm. If it does happen to have an organism in it, it'll replicate. The other is hops are volatile. And if you're making Northeast IPAs that are supposed to have spectacular aroma, yeah, you've got 30 to 90 days to drink that thing before it is totally not what the brewer had designed. So pasteurization is a way for the larger breweries to maintain product shelf life. But as you were starting earlier and talking about local and looking at small business, um, I think we're seeing a real shift in the brewing industry to an increase in the local buy, if you will. I'm looking for local breweries to consume at. Huge supporter. And you're watching the folks in the middle get pinched. All right, so you talked about economics, right? That the mid-scale craft brewery, and one of the reasons that I think you saw the Dogfish Head Sam Adams merger is because they were caught between the small business local and AB InBev and Miller Coors, and that in that regard, they had to evolve or die. So for those of us who are looking at buying local, no real need for pasteurization. We're going to buy this product. We're going to drink it and we'll be back next week for our next four-pack. Good point. Thank you. So real quick, Lauren, when we first met, you mentioned that you stick to cans over bottles for a certain reason. Would you mind shedding some light on that thought? For us, the way a can is sealed, the oxygen pickup in a can. So for, for those that don't know, oxygen is great beginning of fermentation. The yeast needs it. Great. Beyond that, you do not want oxygen in there. So oxygen reacts with the lipids in the beer and the alcohol, and it makes things taste like paper and cardboard. It's not great. So after that process, you want everything to not have any oxygen in it. With a bottle, the way the cap kind of fits on a bottle is never completely sealed. It's just kind of crimped on there. And they usually have this little rubber or silicone on the inside of the cap that kind of helps the seal, but it's still not a perfect seal. For a can... Uh, the way that it's crimped on each other, it's a much more perfect seal. You're going to have much less oxygen getting in there after it's packaged. You know, and then there's also the light pickup thing. So if anybody has had a Rolling Rock or a Heineken, there is a skunky flavor to that beer. Some people love it. And if I'm drinking a Rolling Rock, I'm like, hmm, skunky. Yes, because it's a Rolling Rock. But also there's a lot of people that don't want that in their beer. I don't want that in my beer. And that's from light pickup. So in bottles, bottles are glass. And even if you use brown glass, there is a little bit of light that gets in there. Skunking happens from when light hits the hop oils. It's a it's a light to hop oil reaction. And in a bottle, you do, you do have some light in there. Even if you're using the brown bottles, brown bottles work. They're great, but there's still some light that gets in there. With a can, there's no light that's getting in there. So, you know, I've been in the brewing industry long enough to be part of the bottle boom and then be part of a brewery that was like, no, cans, but whatever. But if you look at the the research behind it, cans are going to have less oxygen pickup over time. You know, if you're putting in your fridge, you're keeping it out, you put in your fridge, it's not going to expand and contract as much as a bottle. It's not going to let as much oxygen in there. And obviously, it's an aluminum barrier. It's never going to see light. True. Some people cling to a bottle. Some people cling to a can. Uh, I know one thing that we did talk about is that the cans, aluminum cans, have uh, linings into it. So it could also throw off the taste. Yeah, some aluminum cans do have lining. I know that the aluminum cans we use at Necromancer do not. Uh, I think it's usually up to the brewery. There is a there is a lining that some use that is like BPA-free lining. I know people are, it's the same lining they use for like canned vegetables and canned tomatoes and stuff. I don't think you need to use a lining. I would hope that that beer is going to be consumed quick enough that, that the pH of the beer is not going to eat it <laughs> the aluminum. You're letting that beer sitting on that shelf that long. Just drink it, guys. <laughs> Save the bottles for your cellar and drink the cans. Agreed. Okay. 
the last piece of the puzzle that we had outlined to talk about here was the expenses to worry about when in the brewing business. Lauren, could you speak on this at a larger scale practice? And Bob, could you follow up with what expenses you'd encounter at the home brewer level? And this is in terms of both upfront and sustaining costs. Yeah, so upfront costs, I mean, if you're starting a brewery, your upfront costs are going to be a getting it retro, getting the space retrofitted for a brewery, which we could have an entire podcast about. Sweet. This is a bunch of engineering folks. You guys will eat it up. You can hit me up. I'll, I'd be happy to talk to you guys about it. But you're looking at like water pressure, floor load, electrical, gas. So getting a, a space retrofitted and then it, and then it's your equipment costs. You know, you have to buy all this equipment to make the beer. You know, and then getting your ingredients is part of the upfront. It's also part of the sustaining, you know. So the things that we have to worry about now is the water bill, the electricity bill, the gas bill, and then the malt bill, the top bill, the yeast bill, and kegs, and CO2, and chemicals to clean. You know, brewers, we try really hard to kind of mitigate those costs. Like, we recollect our water uh, to chill. So when we're chilling our wart down to knock out, we'll recollect that water so we can reuse it to clean. You know, we reuse yeast. You can't really reuse hops or grain, but like the grain, we we partner with farms so that that spent grain gets carried off to a farm. Those cows eat it, and then I don't have to worry about paying for trash pickup. They just come pick it up, and it's nice, a win-win Beautiful. situation for us both. In a nutshell, there's many more costs, but those are kind of the big dogs of what you're thinking about. And it's kind of the same when you're home brewing, depending on how far you want to go with it. Finding chickens to, to eat your grain. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm thinking grain pretzels myself. So it's something we haven't talked at all about, and I don't know that I want to jump in deeply now, but Lauren just talked about cleaning chemicals and, and cleaning these vessels. And something we have not talked about at all, but is super important in brewing, sanitize, sanitize, sanitize. Um, if you don't do that correctly, your beer will suck. If you sanitize, then you've got a fighting chance to get there. From a home brewer's perspective, right, taking Lauren's scale and, and completely simplifying it dramatically, $70 in a large stainless steel pot, call it 24 quarts, six gallons, will get you to a starting homebrew rig. It's a little bit of plastic because we don't do stainless at the homebrew scale unless, as Lauren was saying, you go all in. So, you know, that's the equipment you need, probably looking at under $200 in total. And then there's recipe costs, but... When you want to get deeper, well, then you can just start racking up your costs. You know, I got tired of bottling, so I kegs, five-gallon, you know, kegs are like a Coke or a Pepsi keg. I've got a keezer. I boiled over once too often on my kitchen stove, so my wife sent me to the garage, so I have a high-intensity burner. I've got uh, some larger stainless steel pots because I went all grain. I had the orange cooler mash tun. The best investment in brewing I've ever made was a plate and heat exchanger. It took my chilling process from 45 to 60 minutes down to 10, um, saving tons of time. And then, I mean, you can go all the way to full stainless steel set of equipment, um, which basically would be a scale-up rig for Lauren. Yeah, it's a homebrew version of what I have. SS Brewtech. Look them up if you have some coin to just toss away. <laughs> <laughs> I say Ruby Street is the frequenter of the AHA convention. Ruby Street's also very good, but if you want that glycol rig, you got to get that uh, that SS Brutech. Glycol. Wow. All right. Full bore. One thing I want to point out here is that you both have mentioned a couple things about circular economics and sustainability. They're really important. And, you know, if you seek out these off-grid opportunities that a lot of people don't take advantage of, 
it's taking it away from the linear approach of I use something, I throw it away. Well, there's always another alternative to, to something. So one, it helps save the planet in certain ways. And two, it also saves you a buck. So make sure you think about your alternatives whenever you're trying to do your setup. Get kegs. And I'll tell you what, home brewing is way cheaper than going and buying a bunch of, I'm going to throw myself under the bus, but buying a bunch of craft beer. And also, if you don't want all those cans in your recycling bin, you get a keyser or a kegerator set up, you're set. You're saving, every time you keg a beer, you're saving 44 cans going in the bin. Good point. So I'd like to close by asking Bob and Lauren to give their final thoughts and advice to the people out there, either into brewing already or thinking about getting in on the action or, or heck, even someone who's considering trying craft beer. Bob, would you like to go first? I guess two of them. The first, I am brewing today out of straight up serendipity. I was asked by a friend who lived a couple stories above me when I moved to Pittsburgh, did I want to try brewing a beer? I said, yes. My wife, six years later, said, you need a hobby. Okay, cool. All in. And that from that standpoint, it was just something to do for fun, a little trial and error. As you said, art meets science, and you can take it anywhere on that axis. You can be super artistic with a little bit of science. You can geek out completely, much as we've done on this podcast, and, and it's a great time. The second, and particularly for the stressed set who are looking at this going, oh, it's so complicated, I don't know if I can do this. I'm going to quote the grandfather of the American Homebrewers Association, Charlie Papazian, and say the motto for all of this brewing on the homebrew side, kick back, relax, have a homebrew. So geek out to the extent you want to. Otherwise, it's a fun hobby to give a run at. And the people in the brewing industry, homebrewers, craft brewing combined, are outstanding people. Everybody wants to share knowledge and talk beer, as Lauren said before. The people are spectacular. Beautiful. Well said. Lauren, what's your final thought and advice? I'd have to go along with Bob. I mean, it's just the homebrewing side, please don't be intimidated. Like it was said, you, you can make as little of it or as, as much of it as you want. You can do extract brewing, which is cake, guys. If you want to get into brewing, do some extract brewing. It seems like cheating. It's kind of, but I mean, I've made extract brews when I was home brewing that won awards. So definitely good enough to drink. And then you, you can, you can take it as, as far as you want. If you ever want a career in brewing, I highly suggest home brewing a couple of times just to kind of get your feet wet. Uh, it does help. I've had brewers that haven't done it, and they're still great. But just to kind of get the science of it, or just, you know, listen to this podcast. Yeah, I mean, take it as far as you want. It's a great job. It's a fun job. If anybody ever wants advice, I think we're going to talk about my Instagram or something. Just hit me up. I'm one of those brewers that just loves to talk about beer and loves to talk about everything. So if you ever need advice or anything, just hit me up. And yeah, even if you're at home brewing, hit me up. It's a great hobby. It's very cost-effective, and uh, it's one of the best things I ever did. I had a friend that told me that I could make beer on my own, and I thought they were full of it. And then they were like, yeah, just go buy these pots and do this, and I did it, and then I was hooked, and now look at me. So, yeah, it's a great industry. It's a fun job. It's a fun hobby, and it doesn't like sitting down after a day's worth of work and having a beer. Agreed. Well, perfect. Thank you so much, Bob and Lauren. What a great show been looking forward to this for quite some time now, and I'm, I'm happy I was able to get both of you on the podcast. You have different yet similar backgrounds with a breadth of knowledge, uh, so I'm super thankful that you're on. Thanks so much for having me. Cheers. 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 
That is all for this episode of The Science of Brewing. Now I'd like to give a big shout out to my guest stars, Bob and Lauren, for sharing their knowledge and vast expertise. I would also love to mention my amazing team for their collective efforts to make this show happen. As I mentioned before in the podcast, please do us a favor and give us some feedback by filling out the community poll for which beer style best fits your palate. As for a follow-up to this episode, if you're considering getting into homebrewing, I highly recommend you check out the Pittsburgh Brewery Diversity Council and the District Pittsburgh Master Brewers Association for a membership or just to view their information on upcoming events, equipment, recipes, how-tos, and of course, the brewers in your area. Also, I want to stress that you should check out where Lauren works for some quality brews. As stated many times, Lauren works for Necromancer Brewing here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. You can follow them on social media or find them on the web at necromancer.beer. And of course, I can't forget Bob and my alma mater, the University of Pittsburgh, for sharing this information in one way, shape, or form. Big shout out to Bob for his work to get brewing into the Swanson School of Engineering. I highly recommend you take that class if you're in Pitt. And one more plug, and I'll let you go here. Thanks a bunch to the Young Professionals community of the American Institute of Chemical Engineers. If you're considering becoming a Chem E, I recommend getting involved early and getting connected to people of similar professional backgrounds by joining the society on campus and also post-graduation. Lastly, after this episode, give our podcast a rating and review on whatever platform you get your podcasts on. We are always looking for feedback and the rating would greatly help us out in the fight against the algorithms. Once again, thank you all for listening to Everything Steam. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. And as always, stay curious. Everything Steam would like to give a shout out to Anchor by Spotify for sponsoring our podcast along with Ben Sound Music for providing our show with intro, outro, and advertising background rhythm.